Welcome to Action's Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. I'm back here at episode number 101 after taking a little bit of a summer off. Hopefully you checked out the 100th episode where I got my friend and podcast host Luana Bassetti to interview me and talk about my new endeavors. But here we are at the end of the summer, uh, right back to the same format of interviewing people who pursue their true passions in life, pursue something that they really want to see in the world. We're going to start off this kind of new season, kind of new time here with uh, my guest today, Devin Sony, who is the co-founder and CEO of the Matador Network. Devin, welcome to the program. Great. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us from lovely Las Vegas, Nevada. Always a wonderful place. And uh, let's start out telling us a little bit about the Matador Network. It's kind of an alternate way of people can invest their money. Absolutely. So... What matter really is that at the end of the day is a company that lets people buy, sell, and trade precious metals, starting with gold, in a really easy, streamlined fashion. The same way that you know they could buy stocks with Matador or you know crypto or tokens with with Coinbase. It's just really a easy, streamlined way for people to participate in the precious metals economy. I know we just went through a period, potentially still in this period or have another period again, where people are really concerned about inflation and people are wanting hedges against that and hedges against kind of the entire expansion of the monetary supply, which has really been going on in earnest for a little over 15 years now. So what does the precious metals offer that, say, something like Bitcoin, what's the difference between when someone's going to want to invest in one versus the other? Absolutely. No, it's a great question. It's a really interesting one. I'm going to take a little digression because you know I think yeah. when you look, think about gold historically or precious metals over the last 500 years or hundreds of years, it's been sort of that mainstream go-to asset when, when times get rough, when there's wars, inflation, pandemics, inverted yield curve, all these things, you generally see precious metals you know, outperform the majority of other assets. However, you know, we really haven't had a time like we have in the last couple of years where you're seeing some of these issues in the world, but you also have a whole variety of new assets, right? You you know, Bitcoin wasn't around um, in the 80s. And similarly, right, there was just fewer options. You couldn't go on your phone and, you know, invest in a bunch of things, you know, fine art, whiskey, whatever. But I, I think our, our thought at Matador is really that gold and Bitcoin have their own, you know, kind of places for people um, to, to buy. You know, digital assets are great because they, they kind of are investing in the future in some sense of a in this idyllic world where, you know, a lots more transactions are digital, you know, the unbanked use cryptocurrencies. And, you know, if you, if you like watch crypto for the last 10 or 15 years, I think the world is certainly getting closer to that. But I think, you know, there's still a lot of challenges that haven't been solved with blockchain. I think those are the kind of regulatory where, you know, there, there's certainly worlds where it becomes much harder to buy and sell it anywhere in the world, which could impact its price. And and secondly, you just have you know some scaling and technical issues that have led to increasing prices of transferring. You know, like so, I think there's certain risks of the dream of a kind of Bitcoin or you know crypto-driven global currency. I think with gold, what you have is you know sort of this past history of performance and stores of value in many many economic environments and climates, and I think. There's a lot of things that are going sideways in the world, right? There's a lot more money being printed. There's, you know, wars out there that, you know, that, that people kind of gotten used to, but they're still there. And a lot of, you know, risks out there. And those markets gold have done really well. But I think, you know, Bitcoin and, and crypto is really interesting as well. Just, you know, well, the world is going to change. Technology is going to progress. So there's kind of that future component to it. So when someone buys gold through the Matador network, can you explain to us how it 
physically works because I think the old school method that people oftentimes stereotypically think of is I'm going to bury gold bars into my backyard. Absolutely. And I think like for us, the, the reason we created the business and the product was really, we saw, well, look, everything else is modernized, right? It's, it's a lot easier to buy. You know, you can open your bank account and do everything from your mobile phone. You can buy stocks on Robinhood from your mobile phone. But what, why is it when you want to buy, you know, what should be a really great asset during these times, you've got to go to, you know, a pawn shop for a bank, like look over your shoulder with a duffel bag of money, like, and figure out what you do. <laughs> Yeah, your digital like all these kind of just edge cases that people leave people lose sleep, right? And then it it turns into something that causes more stress, not less. What we really decided to do at Matador was to kind of streamline as much of that as possible by saying, "Well, look, you're buying gold. That gold we're actually storing for you at the Royal Mint in Canada, which to us is like a you know one of the most secure places in the world to actually store metals. It's highly insured, it's highly protected, um, and it's highly cost effective. You buy gold using our digital app." The gold is stored at the Royal Canadian Mint. But if you do say, hey, like I actually want this physical gold, um, you know, to put bury in my backyard, put it in my mattress, my safe, whatever, uh, you can actually just push a button on our app and actually get it delivered. So you kind of have the best of both worlds, which is a, a low-cost storage solution, you know, that that's safe, but at the same time, the option of getting your gold delivered to you. Oh, so people who generally want to bury in their backyard, or I think more commonly nowadays is the people who have like a like a safe somewhere yes. like hidden in their wall with you know detailed combination yep, and yep, yep. I'm guessing what I'm what I'm hearing you say is like you're responding to the market kind of like how anyone building any business would and just say like okay just imagining what your customers are going to want the range of things and some of them are going to say yeah the I want a really secure place but not in my home especially if someone has an apartment, let's say you live in New York City or somewhere like that, and you're going to move every 12 months. It's not something you really want to have physically on you. But then if you go out to, say, stereotypically a more rural place where people have more land and you know want to have everything kind of on their person and maybe, maybe have some level of, of mistrust, even of some of the most secure institutions, they can have that experience as well. Your point is really valid. Like, when things are wrong, people want access to, to, to the gold. You always think of like the worst case scenario here. And it's like, okay, well, how secure really are home safes? And what are, is it more likely that you get you know, kind of robbed or mugged? Or is it more likely that the world order ends completely, right? And I think it's probably more likely that you get robbed or mugged than, than you know, like yeah. you're not redeeming gold from the Canadian minutes. So I think it's like a, a risk reward decision there that I, I certainly go on one way of. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, people can think their own way as well. So then, what happens when someone decides to sell the gold, you know, for one yeah. reason or another? Yeah. So you, you can, you know, sell it just easy. You can buy it directly on our platform. Well, the one thing we really wanted to do was really ensure gold is treated like a store value, which means, you know, you don't, you know, you, you go buy diamonds, right? And you're like, oh, I bought this diamond for $10,000. You're like, I'm going to go sell it now. And you, you go to the store and they're like, it's three grand, dude. Like, you know, it's one of those situations. And gold can often be the same way. So what we really want to do is kind of reduce a lot of that friction and risk. So if you see a price of, $2,000 an ounce of gold on Google, we want to be able to let you buy gold at close to that price as possible. And we want to be able to let you sell gold as close to that price as possible so that you're really um, mitigating any loss of fees, right? Otherwise, you're sitting here waiting for gold to appreciate 10% just to break even, which is really not what anyone's kind of preference is in, 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 you know, when they're making an investment. No, and that's like basically how it worked with stocks because... And this is fairly recently, but we've gotten stock transactions down to a quite low transaction fee where if you buy a stock at $25 a share 
and you sell it at twenty five fifteen a share, you're probably making a profit off of that stock, yeah. albeit a very very small one. Right, right, right. They, you know, it's gone to fixed price where you pay twelve dollars a trade or, or something, which is great. I think it's great for the market. It's it's you know, it's one of the reasons I think that you know during the pandemic, a bunch of people got these stimulus checks, and what ended up happening was you, you saw this boom in in investing on stocks through Robinhood and people buying GameStop and these things, and it, a lot of that was because you know, a lot less friction, right? You didn't have to go call your broker. You don't have to go fax a copy of your ID to open an account. You just download your mobile phone, you know, put in your your bank details. And, you know, 10 minutes later, you're, you're off into the races, right? Yeah. And then what differentiates the Matador network from any other, I don't know, like commonly seen gold buying, silver buying platform that you, you'll see about on like on advertisements anywhere and billboards and stuff? Absolutely. So I think like the back end of a lot of those platforms are still what they were in 1990, where it's like, okay, yes, you, you want to open an account. You still have to go call someone on the phone. You still have to like print out a, a physical application, send it in the mail. You, you know, you have all these things that are just really antiquated. I think part of the reason is, you know, gold hasn't innovated in the last 20 or 30 years, like as a, as a product and, it, and the price hasn't moved. So like people haven't been spending that time on innovating and streamlining where they have with, you know, crypto, for example, because it's the, the new hot thing. So. You know, I think the difference for us is we've really said, look, we want someone to be able to buy gold as fast as they can order an Uber from downloading the app to owning your first gram of gold. It's it's that it's that seamless and quick. Okay, so it's like you're kind of bringing gold into where Robinhood is, where any of these other platforms are, where you can just kind of pull it out, and you know, you just kind of set up a login right, password right. and you know, a couple whatever the secure verification tasks you have on, you know, most of your kind of like. You know, bank applications, and just to make right, sure right. that your your info is secure and people don't like rob you of your assets. But exactly. other than that, though, it's it's kind of bringing that there. Yep, exactly. Uh, awesome. And so, Devin, what motivated you to to start the Matador Network? Is there a, is there a story that you know you and your co-founders, you know, the moment you said like, okay, this is what I want to do? You know, during the the first kind of throes of the pandemic, you know, we saw the market. Um, and so all the things that were happening. And the first thing that happened was, okay, well, you know, this mass hysteria and fear, you know, people kind of you know, locking down. The next thing that happened was obviously, I think what, what helped the economy was just like the crazy government stimulus packages was like, okay, well, in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, here's how much money has been printed by the US and by these other economies that were supporting, you know, restaurants and, you know, all, all these businesses that were shut down. And then, like, here's how much money has been printed in the last like 90 days, and you're like, okay, this is actually crazy, right? And you know, it was like some multiple in excess. What we actually start needing to do is think about what the world's going to look like when so much money's floating around. Is going to be, you know, inflation. Our price is going to go up, and and what does that mean? And you know, I think I've just kind of been studying, you know, finance for pretty much my whole life, as a, both as a hobby and as a profession. And I think now is the absolute perfect time for you know gold and precious metals to shine it hasn't happened for the last 30 years but now is the time and even personally i was like okay well i should probably sell some of my stocks personally and, and buy some gold and i was like starting to look at the ways to do it and you know all the options kind of sucked basically right like yeah it was like okay you can buy an etf which is not really gold and has a bunch of fees you can yeah. go to your bank and it has like a bunch of you know increased spot prices and the whole you know we were living in you know on a sabbatical at the time like argentina or something i'm like how can i hold and store gold in argentina so i was like looking for ways to do it and it, there was just no great way and you know my background and my, my partner's backgrounds are in kind of asset tokenization and taking real world things and digitizing them 
so we thought about metals and gold and we just kind of had a, in, in the back of our head knew how to do it. We just hadn't kind of found the impetus and it felt like the, the catalyst to do it was really, um, you know, sort of that pandemic and all that money printing that came along with it. So it's interesting because I think a lot of people listening out there, anyone that's looking for their idea, looking for what they want to bring into the world, uh, we're kind of looking for that same kind of intersection of a few different things, which is what the world needs, what you feel passionate about and what you feel qualified personally to do. Um, you know, it's possible a lot of people identify the problem. I personally felt like that was a problem as well, although I kind of also thought that that was going to be a problem back in 2008, the first time a bunch of stimulus was printed. But of yep. course, I don't really have a background in finance. I just kind of, you know, have an interest in how, you know, the history of humanity and how the economy is going to like progress over time. So you end up in the situation where you're thinking, okay, it would be nice if someone else did this, but I don't have the skill set. I don't have the background to do it. One thing I'm wondering for the, on behalf of my listeners is what's the key to being in the right mindset to identify those situations when you see, okay, this is happening. This is the need. This is the need that I feel genuinely passionate about. And also I am the person to do it, or I have the qualifications, the background, the know-how to actually do this thing. Broadly, a pretty optimistic person. I think generally you need to be pretty optimistic to be an entrepreneur, but I think oftentimes you need to sort of put that glass half empty hat on and look around and say like what's what's wrong here like what what are my frustration points in industries or areas that I spend a lot of time in what are things that are wrong that I think could go better you know like I think that's kind of one line of thinking but the other one is to be really introspective at times and I think like one of the things I really try to do is like you know on a, on a monthly or quarterly basis really kind of journal the way my like kind of life is going and say hey are these like from a professional level, from a, from a creative level, from a family, like, are those things kind of going the right direction? And if they're not, like, what are the, you know, kind of opportunities and weaknesses I've got to get myself in a you know, different situation? So I think it's kind of that, you, you know, systematic check-in with yourself of, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I need to work on. You know, being a little more out there in terms of just looking at, you know, opportunities and options and problems and, and merging those two things are really good. But if you're, if you're in a mindset where like, I need to make a change, I think the absolute best thing to do is really to take stock of your superpowers as a human and everyone has them. It could be relationships. It could be skills. It could be knowledge. It could be background or education, interests, right? You know, even just looking at those things regularly, like I've got stuff on my wall, right? And from there, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to start looking at all the problems I see in the world with that lens of what am I uniquely qualified to do. And so we live in a culture now where a lot of people like to, you know, I do this and then that, which I know goes like against what most entrepreneurship really is. But if someone wanted to take this idea of taking stock of their superpowers in that kind of direction of what they know, like I'm going to set up this type of thing. Uh, what would you recommend someone do? Someone listening right now that says, I want to find the best method right now to go about setting aside half a day to just take stock of my superpowers? Or is that completely the wrong way to look at it? I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, the, the things I think about, like when I think about that are, there's a few questions I'd probably ask myself. And, you know, one is, you know, what are areas or experiences I've had in my past that I've had a lot of success with where things have gone right? Uh, and why did those things go right? I think another one is what is energizing to me? What do I enjoy doing? Like break up your, your day or your week into here's what I did all week. And these are things I really enjoyed doing. These are things I really hated doing. 
I think that's a really important one because you might be a fantastic, you know, accountant, but if you hate accounting, like, you know, try not the right <laughs> way to spend your time. Yeah. Um, so I think it's like, you know, what are those things that you kind of actually find energizing? Um, what are the areas you've had success? You know, what are areas that people look to you for as an expert, whether that's, you know, socially as personal, you know, from family and friends, like where do people go to you and say, Hey, I've got a problem. You know, what, what do I do here? So I think those three are probably a really good start. You know, and the other one is probably like, where do you spend your time learning and consuming content? If you're spending time listening to experts in a certain area, that probably gives you, you know, sort of the 80-20 to be pretty effective. Whereas if it's something you've never thought about or never heard of, like, sure, you can probably get good at it, but, you know, the, the learning curve is much higher. Yeah, that makes sense, especially when you consider the intentional content. And one of the things I talk about in my new business, Reclaim Your Time, is that we all have the intentional and the unintentional. And so the unintentional is like, I'm just scrolling through a social media feed and really the algorithms deciding what you want to see as opposed to what do I naturally bring myself toward? What am I going to search? Like if I, what am I going to type into Wikipedia and actually search on this thing or go to a bookstore even and look for a book on this thing. And if that happens enough times, you start to identify common themes as long as you're have a certain level of a presence within yourself, a certain level of ability to, I don't know, like set aside the, some of the constant distractions that we have in life and say, okay, this is who I am. This is how I'm feeling. Why am I feeling this? And it sounds like you're saying that we go a little bit toward the positive about it and the says like, why am I energized by this? So as opposed to just like, why am I angry? Why am I feeling sad, depressed? Which is stuff we still need to look into and think about ourselves to also think, why is this energizing me? Why was I more excited to get to work on this particular day than yesterday? Why was I more excited for this social engagement, this meetup than the other one? Absolutely. I completely, completely agreed. Another thing I mentioned before is that I had kind of thought that this inflation was going to hit the fan back in 2008, the first time that we started printing a lot of money. Now, I personally argue that it did, but just on, you know, a little bit more under the radar with like these assets like houses and education and stuff, whereas like clothing and computers didn't. But what do you think is the reason why it appeared, at least for a lot of reasons, that the 2008 money printing didn't lead to the inflation that some people were worried about more widespread, whereas the the printing that we did during the pandemic did lead to inflation across kind of the entire economy. Absolutely. So I think, you know, with the housing crash in, in 2008, it felt to me like it was primarily this kind of, you know, financial driven crash that would really impact a very specific sector, which was housing, which is a really, really big part of GDP. So I think when you're saying, hey, like, did the cost of housing go up or down, you know, post-crash, it probably went down a fair bit for a tremendous number of people who had to downsize, right? It doesn't matter yeah. why the pricing goes down, but like that, that was kind of big issue. You also had a significant amount of, um, you know, unemployment due to those issues and, you know, lack of hiring. So there was like this kind of this whole, you know, excess of labor. There was just a broad fear in the economy that just shut down spending significantly on non-essential goods, which said, okay, well, now this money's being printed, but it's being there to prop up these large financial institutions. It's not actually flowing down to the end consumers who um, are the ones that are spending, you know, what's called the GDP basket, right? Like, you know, they're not spending more on vacations. They're not spending more on housing. That money is, is kind of just there to delever the debt in the ecosystem. Whereas I think 
you, you know, when you look at this pandemic, I think there's a couple of very different areas where one, you know, it, it came in a time when there was significantly low unemployment. People that were employed, you know, frankly, were spending a lot less money because they couldn't spend. You can't, you couldn't spend money in the pandemic. Right? Well, yeah, like home, a lot of people saved money just because of that, Netflix, right? But yeah, and then you also had these significant supply shocks uh, to the ecosystem. You know, shipping was 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 a bottleneck. Manufacturing was a bottleneck, which led to a significant increase of goods pricing. And you know, as, as everyone with common sense knows, right? When prices go up, like for things like that, they don't come back down when the when the, the supply shocks go away, right? Cereal's not going to get cheaper anytime soon. A bunch of pent up spending and the inability to actually buy stuff, so people just started spending more money out of the pandemic, which led to you know increased prices and that, which led to kind of the the inflation, right? And and people yeah. started spending more on housing, more on travel, more on food, right? Like so, I think there's that that was a big part of it. And what dangers does present going forward? You mentioned. Spending some time in Argentina, I think I remember reading an article quite recently that their inflation rate exceeded a hundred percent, and at that point you get you get to a point where the economy is just not really working. And I'm not saying that we ever came close to getting to that point, but what is the danger if, say, inflation were to be you know a little bit higher than the official measurements say and be at ten, twelve percent for yeah. an extended period of time? I think the thing that really struck a chord with me both now and back during that time in Argentina, where there's still inflation, maybe wasn't as high as it is today, but is there's this big dichotomy of haves and haves not. I'm not talking about kind of financial wealth. It's really more about the specific situation you find yourself in and how much mm-hmm. at the whim you are to the government. So I think in Argentina, if you know your sole sources of income were, you know, you were a, a physician or you're a teacher or something where your whole livelihood was paid in, you know, Argentine pesos, your savings are in Argentine pesos, you've got no way to, to, to do anything. You're in a really tough position because um, you, you're really stuck in that local economy and you're really excluded from the global economy of, hey, I, I can invest in dollars and I can own stocks in other countries. I can travel offshore to do my shopping. Like, you know, like, so if you're in a position where you had assets, you know, you, you, you know, there's a lot of people in Argentina that like, Flock to the blockchain in, in 2013, 14, as you expect. Yeah. Those people were living really, really pretty because they make their money in crypto and Ethereum and, and you know, and, and dollars for working for international companies. They were living pretty well, right? They're treating their families out to dinner and like that kind of thing. Whereas yeah. the folks that were, you know, maybe equally educated, but just weren't outside the economy had a lot of trouble. I think now in the US, right? I think there's a similarity of if you're really tied to employment. Meaning you're reliant on a big company who pays you, who says, look, but for the last 10 years, we've given 3% raises. Um, inflation this year is, you know, whatever it is, or someone that has more control over their own, you know, kind of capital and income because they can adjust their pricing. They can, you know, hire, they can make decisions. They can use AI to reduce costs. Like, so if you're sort of an owner of assets in this market, you, you actually feel all right. Um, in, in many cases, because you're able to kind of control your own destiny a little more than the employed are. So I think it's always that kind of difference of the haves and have-nots in every economy are the ones that suffer, you know, the have-nots suffer a lot more depending on what situation they're in. Yeah, and that kind of explains like even the differences in concern over inflation, where people who tend to be more in that have-nots category tend to also be, you know, a bit more upset about it, a bit more more angry about it. Now, would Investments in stocks, like let's just say you have a stock portfolio, whether it's a mutual fund or individual stocks, does that count as an asset in this particular context? Yes, 
if the the time frame is a long term time frame, right? Because the stock market is unpressured in many ways. There seems to be a lot of great values. I think you know you ask anybody what's in the stock market looking in ten years, and it's going to be you know doing all right. But I think if you're sort of reliant on your equity in a bunch of companies to make rent next month, you're probably in a weak position because you know you're selling at the bottom. So I do think that investing in stocks makes a lot of sense. I'm a big proponent of you know. 401ks and IRAs and you know set it and forget it accounts where you, you don't think about it for 40, 50 years, those things only kind of start making sense once you've covered kind of the base income that you need to kind of live your day-to-day life without a lot of stress. Yeah. And I think I saw a statistic somewhere that I don't remember the exact number, maybe 54% of Americans are living quote unquote paycheck to paycheck. And so they would be in a scenario where you know, if stuff at the grocery store is suddenly 15% more expensive and they only got 2% or 5% even as a raise, now they're you know, living a less quality life. Right. Well, what happens, what seems to happen is the first thing to go is savings. And the next thing to happen is the increase of uh, consumer debt, right? Which you're, you're certainly seeing. Which you're seeing a lot of for sure. And also a lot has been made of some people in the younger generations questioning the whole model, the model of being reliant on a big company or or the government for that matter and and choosing a different path. Do you think this event, this inflationary event, as well as some of the other things going on, is going to kind of play into that trend? Or do you feel like the fear might be getting some people to to go more the route of say, all right, well, I just need to get a promotion so I can reclaim my quality of life from before? Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question. Something I think about a lot. And it goes back to even the same thing I said about commercial metals is like, you know, everything that's happening now is kind of happened before people are leaving, you know, the workforce en masse because of, you know, general just dissatisfaction. And yeah. what are they going to? Well, they're, you know, the, the first step of, you know, the side hustles or getting with the, the economy is like, okay, well, I'm going to go be an Uber driver or deliver for Instacart or have the side hustle, which is basically now you're an employee without the stability, without the benefits, right? These kinds of offers and opportunities were the reason that, you know, the employment RAWs and social security and things got created, right? Was because there was a lot of employers during the industrial revolution taking advantage of workers, right? That's why unionization existed. So I think the, the, the challenge now is you see like there's this just giant trend on, on, you know, social media of the instant gratification, which is basically, you know, quit your job and go, you know, sell stuff on Amazon or, Go, here's how I make $2,000 a month, you know, hustling on Instacart or whatever, yeah. without really thinking about, fine, you know, that $2,000 is more than I'm getting on my paycheck, but they're not factoring in, hey, I'm not earning Social Security. I'm not getting benefits. I'm not putting away towards my RA. And like, I, I certainly do think the system is, is broken in many ways because, you know, like it, it's freaking obvious, right? In 1980, you could have, you know, one person working as a plumber, support a family of four, buy a home, you know, send their kids to school and, and, and pay for college. And now you've got, you know, two people that are professionals have graduated college, you know, still same thing. So there's clearly a problem, but I don't necessarily think that these instant gratification solutions of, you know, go drive Uber, you know, cut your cappuccinos are the problem. I think it's a little bit more about investing in yourself, finding that zone of expertise where you're excellent at and continue to drive value. But that's not a, you know, a three week quit your job process. It's a multiple years of introspection. I I think that really are the right path. And in that process, though, do you feel like, you know, being able to drive for Uber, do what people refer to as the quote unquote gig economy can provide some sort of a, I don't know, like a stopgap, say, between the moment when you get so frustrated with your full time job that you just can't do it anymore without it 
eating away at your brain, eating away at your soul. And the point where you finish the introspection and you decide, okay, this is the thing that I can really offer the world as long as you're doing the introspection right. And you're not just spending it all on like booze and spending, you know, 13 hours a day in front of screens and stuff. I absolutely think there's a stopgap. Got young kids. So I always think about, you know, we read a lot of like, you know, old Grimm's fairy tales and stuff, right? And there's that whole, uh, the tale of the grasshopper and the ant. And when it's like summer, right? The grasshopper is like enjoying their time and, and you know, eating and, and just chilling. And the ant's sitting there you know, preparing for winter. And, you know, winter comes and the ant's kind of co- cozy and safe and the, the grasshopper's like dying of starvation and cold. And I think it's sort of that mentality, which is like, okay, well, I certainly think there's a time and a place to hustle, grind, exchange your time for money. And some of these gig economy platforms are great to do it. As long as you don't lose sight of what your kind of long-term goal is and don't realize that this is like, you know, probably not a great ideal long-term solution um, to build financial stability, at least in my opinion. Yeah, so don't start driving for Uber and find a way to spend every dollar that you make beyond your, you know, whatever. And, and, and without planning for the future and say, this is going to last me for, I think it's just like endemic. Like I'm just terrified of what's going to happen in, in 30 years when, you know, a lot of these people that kind of got stuck in a bunch of these recessions, they got stuck in the 2001, the 2008, and then this one have never been able to, you know, get their head above water to the point where they're saving enough to kind of retire. Like I, I wonder what's going to happen there. It's, it's going to be a really interesting uh, social experiment. That's going to be painful for a lot of people. It's scary for a lot of people, too, because I know also if someone kind of graduated school during the 2008, 9, 10, 11 period, they probably accepted or a lot of them accepted jobs at a lower pay rate than they otherwise would have in a more certain economic time. And then possibly, you know, some people are always looking, always out there trying to find a way to upgrade and move jobs, but some people don't necessarily. And so there are people who are still behind from that. Completely agreed. And I think the really great thing about the economy and the world we live in today is that there's a lot of opportunities to, you know, build businesses, to, you know, share your expertise with the world. Despite all of the systemic challenges we have, there's so much innovation happening in the world right now. And, you know, like leading to things like, you know, you must not mention AI, but like, you know, you have this industry that's like literally, you know, six or 12 months old where, um, you know, experts are going to be needed for the next two decades. And it's not that hard. There's so much content out there online to become an expert in something where you can build and add tremendous value. Like I wouldn't necessarily just like, you know, quit, quit your job and, and, and go figure it out. The approach that I would probably take in that situation would be like, you know, work the day job, pay the rent, and like spend my nights and weekends developing an amazing new skill set that I can validate. Like, I think there's a lot of need for a lot of, you know, talented people out there. You know, the trades are another opportunity, right? Like a shortage of 8,000, you know, electricians that that all make six figures and a shortage of millions of pilots in America, right? These are all things that take a little bit of time and investment. But, you know, I think you got to also think about where the, where the, you know, the winds are moving and, and what's going to be needed in the next five or 10 years. Yeah. And I wholeheartedly agree with the trades and have had a couple of previous podcast episodes about that, about how we spent three decades kind of looking down on that skill set, not really valuing it. And now all of a sudden we have a shortage where depending on where you live in some places, if you want to find an HBAC, there's like a four month wait list to find someone that's going to come in and, you know, redo your furnace and your air conditioning. Um, that's really tough. Now, does this set of opportunities also apply the skill set known as web 3.0 so you know blockchain something that you mentioned quite a bit but kind of that general web 3.0 programming capabilities and stuff absolutely i think 
you know, there was this period over the last five years where a tremendous number of companies raised in the, you know, tens of billions of dollars, which they need to, you know, they're using to incubate their businesses and their ecosystems. Those types of roles require wide variety of skills. And, you know, ask any top blockchain company and they'll tell you that they don't have enough people in certain roles, right? And I think those roles are not ones that require, you know, a, a PhD and, you know, 15 years experience is being a smart contract developer, which, you know, frankly, yeah. if you're a, a smart, motivated person, you could go probably learn at a bootcamp in six months, or you probably learn on YouTube in six months, right? That's a job that you've, you, you know, it's probably a mid six figure job for a lot of people, you know, or you could go consult and, you know, make, you know, 80 grand a year working 20 hours a week. Once you kind of develop that skill set, build your yeah. products, get out there. And, you know, the, the tools to learn, the tools to build and the tools to promote your work are, have never been better. Right. So I think that there's a lot of these things and you know, it's not even being a tech technical person. Right. And everyone's just like, oh, I'm not going to code her. But like, I think the needs are in, you know, marketing and, and you know, community building. And, and those are all areas that are also you know, giant needs um, in, in, in all these, you know, fast growth industries. Oh, yeah. Community building, especially something I put a lot of thought into myself, because one of the things about today's era with everything is that we're as lonely as ever, despite the fact that all these platforms were developed to connect people. Um, I have this graphic I present in a lot of my workshops where I talk about how in 1990, they asked a bunch of people, how many close friends do you have? And a clear majority, over 60%, either put that number in the five to nine or the 10 plus category. And this is how many close friends, you know, people you can you can talk to, you can confide in. That same survey in 2021 had 48%, nearly half in the one to four category and 12% say none. And it's just a matter of like, you know, like you were saying before, or, you know, like you alluded to in, in your story, that combination of seeing what the world needs, what you're passionate about, and also what you're equipped to do in that boot camp. I do, I love those boot camps. Those boot camps do, do help you find a, a more efficient and cost effective way to, to build those skills. Some of them offer, you know, like 12 weeks, really intensive where you leave your job. Some of them offer that six months to a year where you're still at your job and you're doing it for, you know, three hours at night, uh, two or three nights a week or something like that. It's not just developers and coders that there's a need for. I think there's like a giant ecosystem of, you know, experts that are, that, that kind of, you can know, value well, right? They're like, so I would even say like merge your current skill set. You know, if you're the top 25% of something already, like, you know, accounting or marketing or, or whatever, you know, I think augmenting that with being, you know, the top 25% in a high growth vertical, which, which could be web three, it could be AI. And, and frankly, these are new industries. So it's not that hard to go become the top, you know, it's like, well, yeah, listen to sure. you know, the five cast and read a few books and you're like, you know, better than the majority of the country on something uh, that's very new. I think you merge those two skill sets and I think you've got an, a great niche for yourself to, you know, improve your earning potential. That's what you're trying to do. And now as more people start to consider these options, you know, whatever the options are, improving your skill sets or something like that, do you see something fundamentally changing about the way our society is structured in general? Do you see anything where the the standard, the, you know, 20th century model of working for a big company becomes less prevalent, less assumed, or do you see anything else about our economy changing where we can possibly even get out of some of these horrible trends where it went from 
one person working 40 hours a week to two people each working 50 hours a week, but still getting less as far as yeah. housing, you know? Well, well, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those almost like forest fire situations where there's so much like infrastructure here that you kind of need to burn down, which causes some short-term pain in order to, you know, improve the long-term situation of an ecosystem. And I think, yeah. you know, like the, the big ones to me are, you know, kind of college, obviously, right. It's like one of the biggest expenses people have, they get in debt hundreds of thousand dollars. If you're going to go be a physician, it makes a lot of sense. If you're going to go, you know, do do something that's not licensed position, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So like, I think what, what I kind of see there is like, look, you, you take the top 50 colleges in America, as just using American example, and they have you know significant amounts of demand versus their supply, right? There's a lot more people that want to go to Harvard or Duke or Georgetown than there are spots. But then you go below that and it's like, okay, well, there, there's a lot more people that don't want to go to these schools than there are spots. And they start... You have to be heavy marketers to attract people, right? So I almost yeah. see one of the world that's going to happen is like, well, look, you know, the, the world's going to bifurcate into people that are, you know, value education and like the top 20, 50 institutions are going to change to do well, but everything below that's going to kind of fall out and kind of wind down because people don't see the value anymore, you know, in borrowing in 200 grand to go to, you know, some small abroad school that doesn't have great job placement. Um, I think similarly, you know, technical trade and certifications are going to have much more cachet. Uh, there's going to be much more sort of modernization of that industry, which I think is is great. Unemployment is very low. There's a lot of jobs that are needed that are high paying that aren't available. It's just like it's a skills and training gap. And I think the problem is, you know, large universities have been subsidized by the government for so long that they've been kind of getting people into the cycle that's not ideal. You know, that that's kind of one trend. The other one is around homeownership, which is, um, you know, it used to be sort of, the, the common thing, everyone has to buy a home and is what you do. And I think people start realizing math doesn't work anymore. Um, and they're going to, you know, identify and choose different living situations. It might be, you know, living with roommates for a long time. It might be living in tiny homes. It might be, you know, digital nomadism and, and living in other places. And then the third one is, you know, remote work has kind of augmented this a lot because now you can work for anyone with skills and, and live anywhere you want in a lot of cases. So I think you have these three trends of education, you know, kind of housing and, and um, you know, kind of just broadly like the economic opportunities and they're all going to really impact how the next 20, 30 years are shaped. And so some people are going to have a little bit of pain and I'm guessing that people with pain are going to be the people who are most attached to the old way, most, you know, exactly in whatever way, like their, their situation is most, or, you know, whether it be financial, even psychological, uh, most attached to like this, the traditional edu- institutions, traditional education, stuff like that, that are the least willing and open to, you know, make some of these adjustments, even if some of these adjustments, like maybe, you know, we're so lonely. So maybe having more roommates is better, maybe multi-generational households. You know, cohabitation, joint, you know, co-living, like those are things that like are really big trends I've seen that started during the pandemic that you're going to see continue. I think people kind of like those intentional living communities. I have a lot of friends who are real estate developers and, you know, what they're saying is the demand is around you know smaller homes around a big community. Maybe there's like a pickleball court or some sort of communal area or like, you know, these kinds of things are are really in demand by younger people. And I think when you think about that destruction, right? Like you, you see it happen all the time. Like think about the, the record industry, right? Like the people that were the, com- the companies that were most resistant to change of going digital were the ones that could hit the hardest, whereas the ones that leaned in most quickly, jumped in, changed their business model to, you know, concerts and merchandising instead of record sales have continued to thrive, right? It, it's a really interesting analogy, but I think you're going to see a lot of that where the more you try to hold on, the more you're going to get torn apart at the end, right? Like, yeah. Definitely. And then if someone listening is interested in investing in the Matador network, if starting a you know precious metal investment, and I know you also do some uh, Bitcoin blockchain stuff too, uh, what would be the best way to to, to find you? Yeah, our domain, buy, buymatador.com. 
we're launching um, the next couple of weeks. We're kind of in a private beta right now with our initial users. So uh, by matter of com, you can sign for the waitlist. And when you launch, you'll be the first to hear about it. All right. Well, uh, that's that's amazing. I'm glad you're kind of bringing this opportunity to people who might otherwise have had you know a little bit too much pain in that process to 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 really do it. You know what I mean? People who might have like gone to one of those you know gold buying sites and been like, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do that, I have to do that. It's a bit too much, getting a bit too annoying, and and making it more accessible. Kind of in a similar way that you know you say, you know how Robinhood and some of those other sites made like the stock purchasing more accessible. Any last words of wisdom for anyone out there uh, listening that's either found their passion and looking to find a way to, to make it happen or is just kind of looking for something different than what they currently have? Uh, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think the two things are, again, like I, I cannot highlight, you know, at least in my career as well, how much, you know, finding the right economic tailwinds of things that are kind of growing fast and moving. Uh, they continue to a lot of humans. There's a lot of opportunity, right? When, when things are moving fast, and things are dynamic. That's the place you kind of want to be, if you're, especially if you're at a crossroads and uncertain, because you're gonna, you know, interact with a lot of motivated people. You're gonna see a lot of change in, in short amounts of time, and it's it's really easy to differentiate yourself and become an expert in a place where uh, things are changing a lot. That's amazing advice. And Devin, thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes and for sharing your story with the audience and helping us kind of figure out that, you know, like I said, that intersection of what you're good at, what you're passionate about and what the world actually needs. And I'd also like to thank everyone out there for listening today, for tuning into Actions Antidotes beyond the 100th episode. And whether this is your first or your 101st, I really appreciate you being here. And I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to this. And I hope that these stories uh, lead you to a, a better place.